My name is Joseph. I'm one of the pastors here at Deer Creek, and uh, happy Sunday to you. Thanks for joining us here today. We are in week two of our summer teaching series titled Summer in the Psalms. If you got to join us last week, we got to take a look at Psalm chapter one. It's a psalm of orientation, a psalm that motivates us, that guides us, kind of amps us up a little bit, because the psalms are ancient songs or poems, kind of like our music today. If Psalm one was to kind of be put in our current context, this would be your workout music. Right? This, is your, this, is your, this is your driving tunes, this is your Taylor Swift, this is your Almond Brothers. This is what gets you amped up, gets you motivated, helps you stay on course, helps you know where you're going, and helps give you the motivation to get there. Well, this week, we're going to look at a different genre of music. We're going to look, instead of at a psalm of orientation, we're going to look at a psalm of disorientation. This week's all about the blues. It's going to hit you right in the feels. And so we are going to look at a psalm of disorientation because life can be pretty disorienting, Right? Maybe you have felt disoriented here recently. Maybe you have felt disoriented in your marriage. Maybe you had a not super fun drive over to church this morning. I've been there, my wife and I have been there. Or maybe you had a super disorienting week at work where the job that you had wasn't quite what you expected it was going to be. Maybe some of you even got let go of a job, disoriented, confused, questioning. When was the last time you ever felt disoriented in your relationship with God, disoriented in your faith? There are moments that every single one of us goes through where we feel like up is down, left is right, night is day. It feels like God isn't there and God doesn't care. Now, what I love about the Psalms, what I love about God's word is it seems to level the playing field for every single one of us. Whether you're here and this is your very first Sunday in church ever, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Whether you're a skeptic, whether you're seeking, whether you're, you've been a faithful follower of Jesus your whole life, I have a hunch that there's a common thread that connects every single person here today, and that's that we have all been in seasons of profound disorientation. Seasons where we have asked, God, are you there? God, do you even care? Now, I'm going to put you on the spot this morning. We're going to start. We're going to kind of dive in uh, very heavy-handedly. I would like to ask you, have you ever felt like you have been in a season like that before? A season where you have asked, God, are you there? God, do you even care? If you wouldn't mind just being honest, just raising your hand right now if you've been in a season like that. Wow, do me a favor. Keep your hands up for just a second. Take a look around the room right now. You can put your hands down. Thank you for your honesty. I, I don't know if anything else worthwhile is gonna come out of this sermon this morning. I don't know if there's gonna be any other huge takeaways. You might have had your most encouraging, most enlightening moment of your Sunday morning right then and there. Yeah, it's all downhill after that, folks. <laughs> but you thought you were all alone. You thought it was just you who felt disoriented, who had these big questions of God. God, where are you? Are you even there? God, do you even care? Why is that? Why do we feel so alone in seasons of disorientation? Right, because cognitively, we know that other people go through seasons just like that. We, we know that suffering is real. We know that the world is real. We know that situations happen to other people all the time. But for some reason, when we are experiencing pain and disorientation, we feel very alone. Two reasons, I think, contribute to this, at least. One of them is people like me. It's pastors. It's pastors who stand up front on a Sunday morning and present to you, faith is easy. Here's platitudes. You just need to pray more. You're struggling you just got to have more faith. It's just a mystery. And we stand up here on Sunday mornings, many of us do, and we present faith like it's some mathematical formula, right? You put in the right variables. A little bit of prayer, a little bit of Bible study, a little bit of tithing, a little bit of church tennis, boom. Happy, easy life. Sunshine, kittens, and rainbows. <laughs> and we all know that's just not true. 
That's bogus. We feel viscerally how bogus that is, but we hear it over and over again. Religious platitudes. You just gotta have faith. You just gotta trust. You know what else makes it really difficult for us? What makes us feel very alone, like we're messing up somehow when we're in a season of disorientation? It's other Christians. It's other Christians. It's people just like you and me. It's when we, maybe we're in the middle of a season of disorientation, doubt, fear, anxiety, we're questioning, and we work up the courage to go to church, maybe for the first time in a long time. Maybe we work up the courage to go check out a small group, and we sit down, and invariably there's someone there we run into who shares a story like this. God is good. You'll never believe what just happened. I was, I was going to the mall this weekend, and I was late. I was running behind. I said, Lord, I need a parking spot. I am so late. I'm so far behind. I need a ram in the thicket. I need a coin in the fish's mouth. Lord, I need a miracle. And lo and behold, you'll never believe what happened. This lady pulls out very front spot. There I am. Best parking spot in the whole lot. God is good. <laughs> Prayer works. <sighs> and we hear that. <laughs> And we just want to say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? God answered that prayer for you? I have real problems. I have real needs. I have real questions. I need a job, right? I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills this month. My child is sick. I don't know how I'm going to get through today much less this week, this month, and God's answering your prayers for a parking spot, and that leaves us feeling disoriented. That leaves us with big questions. God, are you there? God, do you even care? Now, here's the good news. You are in good company if you have ever been in a season of disorientation. Right, you already saw it here this morning. You may doubt me on that. You may look around and look at your neighbors like, I don't feel like I'm in good company, Joseph. I don't know. I don't know if I trust these people. Hang in there. But you are in good company in light of this, in light of God's story in his written word. You are in good company if you have ever asked big questions of God, big questions of faith. From the very beginning to the very end, you see titans of the faith asking difficult questions of God, facing seasons of disorientation. You're not alone, and it isn't easy. So what do we do in these seasons of disorientation? Well, we're going to look at a psalm together. We're going to look, actually, at the words of one of these titans of the faith. We're going to look at Psalm chapter 13. You can go ahead and start turning there. We'll have the words on the screen behind me here in a second. But psalm chapter 13 is written by David. Ever heard of him? Yeah. David and Goliath. We went to Sunday school. We've heard these stories. Titan of the faith. David was described, actually, in Scripture in a very uh, personal, profound way, reflected his, his tight relationship with God. He was described as a man after... Yeah, you guys went to Sunday school. God's own heart, yeah. A man after God's own heart. A man who had such an intimate, such a personal relationship with God that he reflected a great deal of what God desired for all of our relationships with him to look like. Now, I want you to hold that phrase in the back of your head as we read this. As we read these words, what does the man after God's own heart, a titan of the faith, have to say? You can follow along here. Yeah, there's the words. Thank you, Dustin. And uh, I'm going to read this. You can follow along. This is Psalm chapter 13. How long, Lord? How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? 
Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. We're gonna pause right there. Right, you don't need to have a a literary degree. You don't need to have have a master's in uh, poetic criticism to see some things right away about David, the man after God's own heart. He's disoriented. He's in distress. Very apparent, very obvious. Now, scholars speculate, we could speculate all day about what has put David in this situation. Uh, maybe he's running from Saul, his, his king, the former king, or the, one, the king right before him who hunted his life on several occasions. Maybe he's going through family betrayal. One of his sons actually rose up and challenged him, created a civil war within Israel. Maybe he's navigating through that. Maybe he's navigating a plague that's gone through Jerusalem or the death of a, one of his children. We're, we're not 100% sure, but we are very, very clear David is in distress. David is disoriented. David is asking big questions of God. The man after God's own heart has questions. And I love that because this psalm throughout the years has been known by a lot of different names. Pastors, theologians, writers. It's been known as the psalm of sorrows. It's been known as the psalm of longing. It's been known as the psalm of abandonment. But my favorite It's been known as a psalm of questions. Questions are real, aren't they? We have questions. Whether explicit, like whether they are spoken, like the words David speaks, or implicit, rattling around within our brains. We have questions about God in the middle of disorientation. Now, I think David is asking some of the very same questions that we face in the middle of disorientation. And he, he uses some of the same words here, how long, how long, we see that four times here in this very short little passage. But I think there's some, some subtext questions that David is asking. And the first one is, is how long? It's when. We see those words right there. How long, God, when? When is this gonna be over? I don't know about you, that's the first question I ask whenever I'm in any kind of season of disor- disorientation or pain or suffering. When, oh Lord, is this gonna be over? And if you're anything like me, I hate waiting. I hate waiting. I cannot stand being made to wait. I cannot stand waiting because I feel passive. I feel inactive. I feel worthless when I'm waiting. I had a mentor in college who uh, was one of those folks who always speaks hard truth in your life. And sometimes you're like, man, just keep that stuff to yourself. You don't want to hear that. But you know it's true. And he described me in this way one day. We were sitting down over coffee. And he said, Joseph, you are addicted to motion. I was like, oh, you're right. Uh, I am. I I am. I'm addicted to motion. Even the staff kind of teases me a little bit. Whenever we sit at a staff meeting, I'm kind of fidgety. You you see it in my preaching. I like to move around. I like to be engaged. I like to be active. If I sit in one place for too long, I get antsy because I don't like to wait. I don't like to be inactive. I don't like to be passive. I'm addicted to motion. And if you are a person like me at all, maybe you're someone who is a little addicted to motion yourself, it's very easy for you in the midst of seasons of disorientation to say, forget it, I'm not waiting. I'm moving on. I'm sweeping this under the rug. I'm blowing right past this. That comment that my spouse made, this thing going on at work, I don't want to pay attention to that because I will feel passive. I will feel inactive. I will be forced to wait. I will be helpless. Helpless is my least favorite emotion to feel, period. Can you relate to that? I'm not sure there's anyone that really likes feeling helpless. Because when we are helpless, we have no influence. When we're helpless, we have no ability to manipulate a situation. When we are helpless, we are out of control. 
And so we ask the question when we feel helpless, when we are waiting, God, how long until I can get out of this? It's a very common question many of us ask in the middle of disorientation. The second question is this, God, where are you? God, where are you? You can see it in that, second, in that uh, first uh, line there. Will you forget me forever? The psalmist feels forgotten by God. Now let me ask you a question. Who here has ever, uh, have, have you ever forgotten to meet someone before? Forgotten an appointment, forgotten a special event, maybe a birthday, an anniversary, forgotten someone else's, forgotten something before? Yeah, yeah, most of Hey, don't beat yourselves up. I'm sure you had a lot going on. I'm sure that your life was really crammed and really busy right now. Circumstances were outside of your control. Now, who here has ever been forgotten before? Who here has ever had someone not show up for an appointment, forget their birthday? Yeah, those jerks, how dare they? Yeah, how, you're important. We're important. How dare they forget us? Sort of how we do it, right? Now, when we forget other people, well, you know, my life was really busy. Circumstances were out of my control. I'm only human. But when we feel forgotten, that hurts doesn't it? We hate feeling forgotten. Now, not all forgetting is equal, right? It's, it's one thing to, to show up for a lunch appointment, for a coffee date with a friend, and someone doesn't show up. That stings. It's another thing to forget a spouse's birthday, right? That never goes well. That does not bode well for your relationships. It's another thing to be forgotten by a parent, to be forgotten by someone who is very near to you. My first year after my undergrad, after college in North Carolina, I worked as a teaching assistant uh, in a middle school in, uh, just outside of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and worked in the classroom throughout the day. But just like most teachers, you had these kind of ancillary uh, responsibilities kind of outside of the classroom hours. And so mine was parking lot duty. And so I would help, pick, you know, help uh, watch kids get dropped off by parents, make sure they don't you know, speed through at 80 miles an hour. Tuck and roll, Johnny, you know, kind of tumble out to the side. Oh, slow down. Okay, go slow, nice and easy through here. But also to make sure the kids got picked up at the end of the day. Now, inevitably, invariably, all the time, someone would get forgotten a parent wouldn't show up. And this, this actually was very common. You know, miscommunications happened. Mom thought dad was picking up little Johnny. Dad thought mom was picking up little Johnny. They both thought grandma or grandpa was picking up little Johnny. And the kid is left there. And it, this happens, and it's not super traumatizing. And we call the parents. We get in touch with people to help them get picked up. But throughout the course of a year, you started to see the repeat offenders. Throughout the year, you started to see little girls and little boys who watched all of their friends get picked up, but they didn't. And they get to go home and they get to go out for ice cream and they get to go to the games and whatever. And for whatever reason, some of them almost every single week would get forgotten. And you would see their countenance just drop. You would see their spirit drop because to be forgotten by a parent, that hurts. The deeper and more intimate a relationship, the more painful the forgetting. So when David, the man after God's own heart, says, God, will you forget me forever? He's not talking to some abstract cosmic force. He's talking to his heavenly father. This is a painful forgetting. And I think that every single one of us longs to have that type of intimate relationship with our heavenly father. In some fashion or another, at some point or another in our lives, we have longed for that and we have felt let down. We have felt forgotten. We have maybe asked this question, God, will you forget me? You're there for everyone else. You seem to remember everyone else just fine, but what about me? And we feel forgotten. That's the second question. 
God, how long? When is this gonna be over? Where are you at? And the third question I think David is asking is why? Why? How long will you hide your face from me? David feels like God isn't just forgetting him. He feels like God has actively abandoned him. Right, because we, we can, forgetting is passive. We can't make ourselves forget. No matter how hard many of us even try at some point, certain events, certain things, embarrassing moments, shameful moments, hurtful moments in our life, we, we cannot actively make ourselves forget. But boy, we can actively hide, can't we? We actively do hide. And sometimes there's reasons we do that. And so the psalmist moves from God, where are you, to why are you hiding? Why are you hiding? Have I done something? Have I failed you in some way? Have I disappointed you in some way? Why would you actively hide from me? And I think many of us progress in these seasons of disorientation from asking God, when is this gonna be over? To where are you at, God? To why in the world would you do this? Why in the world would you leave me here? Now, these are really common questions. I'm trying to establish a baseline for all of us. We see David, we see the God, uh, we see the man after God's own heart asking these big, these difficult questions, but there's something particular that I wanna point out for, for us as a church, because for whatever reason, this is another sermon, it's another discussion, questions have gotten a really bad reputation in the church. Questions make us particularly uncomfortable in the church. For whatever reason, we think that questions reveal gaps in our faith, where we, we think the questions undermine our faith, we think the questions uh, reveal to us that there's something not right about our relationship with God, and the truth is, they do. They do reveal that, but not always in unhealthy ways. So I have a few just observations on questions because if you're anything like me, I know many of us have asked big questions in the middle of seasons of disorientation. So I have some baseline observations on questions. The first one is this. It's really profound. You should get ready to tweet this. Questions are okay. <laughs> Don't get this kind of preaching everywhere, folks. <laughs> questions are okay. No, they truly are okay. Many of us are embarrassed, we're ashamed to admit that we, at points in our lives, have asked questions. Remember the hand raising before. That's difficult to say, yet we know that people do this. People do have questions. Questions are okay. When I worked uh, in the middle of college, I, I worked at a summer camp in Northeast Maryland called Sandy Hill Camp. It was an absolute blast, loved the camp. Uh, I, was on my, I was on the leadership team there both years, and we had this motto, we had this mantra that was given to us as a leadership team. Maybe you've heard it before. Fake it until you feel it. Have you heard that before? Fake it until you feel it. And that was our motto as a leadership team. They said, no matter how tired you are, no matter how grumpy you are, no matter what you're going through personally, you fake it till you feel it. You put that smile on and you grit through it. No matter how annoying the kids are being, no matter what the situation is, you grit through it. God save us from being a fake it until you feel it kind of church. God save us from being fake it until you feel it, followers of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we should be wildly inappropriate with the things we're sharing. We'll, we'll talk more about that towards the end. But I do think this, that we are called by God to be a people who are not perfect and don't pretend to be. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. We talk about that a lot around here, that we are a community of people who are not perfect and don't pretend to be. You wanna know how seriously we take it? It's on the water bottles out in the lobby. Grab one on your way out. <laughs> This has got to be more than a slogan for us. We have got to say, actually, it is okay for you to walk through those doors on a Sunday morning and not really be feeling it. It is okay for you to walk into your small group with deep, profound, difficult questions about your relationship with God. 
We are doing a disservice to one another and we are doing a disservice to the God of the universe who made us when we walk in somewhere and we present this religious frontage. We present ourselves skin deep saying everything's fine. And I particularly think this is an important message for us as a church that questions are okay to not fake it until we feel it for the suburbs, for this area all around us because we live in a culture, we live in an area where boy, do we fake it until we feel it. We put on this polished, shiny veneer day after day after day because we are so consumed by what people might think of us or what they might not think of us based on how we look and how we dress. We have HOAs, we have uh, uh, the ways we dress. Yeah, HOAs, haha, yeah. They're, they, yeah, they're difficult. Uh, we have different things that, uh, the way we dress, the, way we, the cars we drive, things that we do. I talked to a middle schooler last year, check this out, who has a personal trainer. You gotta be kidding me because that, image of how we look and how we act is so vitally important from what we think of ourselves. God save us from being a fake it until we feel it church. So that's my first observation. The questions are actually okay for followers of Jesus. The second observation is this, is that questions rarely take place in a vacuum. Right, and this is actually really important for people like me, for pastors to remember, because rarely do people ask questions because they want a great lengthy theological treatise or academic ivory tower answer. People are usually asking questions because there's a subtext beneath those questions. Are any of you familiar with Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip? Love Calvin and Hobbes, favorite comic strip ever. It's absolutely brilliant. So I have, uh, I, Calvin Hobbes is a comic strip about this little boy, the seven-year-old boy uh, who always gets into trouble and he has this, uh, his imaginary best friend, Hobbes, who's a stuffed tiger. And they, they walk and they play and they get into trouble and they ask all, they have all these deep theological, philosophical questions. And so there's a comic strip I came across that I think illustrates this point really well. And so the first one there, this is uh, Calvin walking with Hobbes, the little boy. He says, Hobbes, I have, a, I have a hypothetical question. Suppose a kid at school called me a nasty name. Should I kick him real hard in the shins? Some of us have wondered that before. Now Hobbes being the more reasonable of the two, he has this response. He says, no, I don't think violence would be justified. So Calvin says, well, here's another hypothetical question. What if I already did? <laughs> right, uh, we can use that phrase, hypothetical question. There's usually a subtext behind the questions we are asking. There's usually something deeper going on beneath the surface. Rarely, very, very rarely, does someone walk into these doors or walk into our community just seeking surface level academic theological answers. Now again, not knocking academia, not knocking theological treatise, treatises, 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 yeah, I don't know what the plural is, yeah, I'm really smart. Yeah, anyway, not knocking any of those things at all. Those are important, those are good. But it's very, very, very important for us as pastors, as leaders, as people who follow Jesus to recognize there's a deeper subtext behind every single question that we hear. Rarely do questions occur in a vacuum. Let me give you an example of this. Someone walks into your small group and says, yeah, but can the Bible really be trusted? I mean, it was written so long ago. It's a good question. That's not a bad question. Now, the pastor in me, the master's in divinity, the degree I have from seminary in me says, well, let me tell you about the doctrine of inerrancy and let me tell you about divine inspiration and let me tell you about Athanasius and his Easter letter that really canonized scripture. No, not that kind of canon, not the canon, the, the canonicity of scripture. Let me tell you all about this information. And that's not a bad thing. But very, very often when someone is asking a question, can I trust scripture? It's because they have been profoundly disappointed in it before. 
They have heard people take it and abuse it for political reasons, for personal advantage. And as they look at scripture, there's maybe a particular passage or there's something particular that's standing out to them and say, this is an obstacle. I want to believe. I want to hold on firmly to these things. But something in my story has made it very difficult for me. We have got to be a church that's a little bit slower to give information answers and a little bit more quick to listen. A little slower to speak and a little more quick to listen. When someone comes to us with questions, they rarely are happening in a vacuum. Now, third observation is this. Questions have answers. This is really, really big and important. For many of us on the other side of the spectrum, we are incredibly insecure as followers of Jesus when people ask us questions about our faith. In fact, for many of us, it is our worst fear possible in the workplace, in our families. What if someone asks me a question and I don't know the answer? What if I don't know? You know what? If you were to say, I don't know, in response to a question about your faith, you are not falsely representing God or poorly representing your faith. You're demonstrating to people that you're not God. You're not all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing. Questions do have answers, even though we may not know those answers in the moment as individuals. Here's some good news. No one is ever going to ask you a question about your faith that has not already been asked in the last 2,000 years. There's good news there. Just because we do not know the answer in the moment doesn't mean there isn't an answer. I, I went to seminary. I've been a pastor for years. In my undergraduate, I studied, I, I majored in religious studies, which basically means you're going to grad school and no matter what you do. And I, yeah. and, uh, I met with a group of our college students just a couple weeks ago. And these guys are getting together and they're asking big questions of the Bible, big questions of faith. And they got together and fired off you know, 20, 30 questions. We're talking, we're dialoguing. And I had answers to a lot of their questions. And boy, there were a couple questions they asked. I said, wow, I've never thought about that before. I don't know the answer to that. Now, I don't think those guys respected me any less. You could argue they, they couldn't respect me any less. Who knows? But I don't think those guys respected me any less because I said to them, I don't know the answer to that question. But let's figure it out together. Let's dig into it together. In fact, I would say they respected me a little bit more because I was honest, because I was demonstrating to them that I am a learner just like them. And being a disciple at its core is about learning. Literally, if you look at the Greek word, disciple means learner. We are learning more day by day about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. Questions do have answers, even if we don't know those answers right in the moment. Fourth observation, questions have answers. Questions have answers that often are not immediately satisfying. I think we know this is true in life. Questions often have answers that are not immediately in that moment satisfying. Maybe even make us a little uncomfortable in that moment. My senior year of high school, we had to come up with a senior project, me and three of my friends, and uh, we decided to investigate and do a research project on the meat processing and meat packaging industry. And you want to know how we came up with that? I'm pretty sure we were sitting around at the breakfast table eating a bunch of bacon. I think we had like four pounds of bacon. We're just like, we need an idea, guys. What do you think? What should we do? Meat processing, meat packaging. And so we started asking questions. We started researching out this industry. And in fact, we got invited to come take a tour of a meat processing and meat packaging plant just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. I have pictures here of... <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that to you. I would absolutely not do that to you. Before lunch, after lunch, really any time. Um, wow, did our questions get answered? And it made us really uncomfortable. And it was pretty gross and pretty messy. 
And uh, we walked away not feeling particularly satisfied. <laughs> now, questions often have answers that are not immediately satisfying. Sometimes when we dig into those deep questions of life, it takes a little bit more time for us to get to a place where those answers do satisfy us. And this is a particular insight for our culture, for North Americans. We want things right away. We want things clean. We want things neat. We want our questions answered just like our meat comes to us in a supermarket. Neat and clean and tidy. Life isn't like that. In fact, I, I confess that often when I'm asking questions, I want those answers to those questions to fit perfectly within my pre-existing view of life because I really don't like to be made uncomfortable. I really like to feel satisfied. So there's some baseline observations on questions, and there's a reason we're sitting with this for so long because David is asking questions. We ask questions in the middle of disorientation. Questions do have answers. So how do we dig more deeply into this as followers of Jesus. Well, first off, we can't sit just with questions. We have to be looking for answers, right? Questions by themselves don't get us anywhere in a season of disorientation. Questions are only as good as the answers they lead us to. Now, there's something about pain, there's something about disorientation, there's something about these seasons of life that do something to us. They mess with us. They limit our perspective. This isn't right. It's not wrong. It just is. So hang with me because I, I, this is going to, it might be a little jarring for some people. But seasons of disorientation, seasons of suffering and doubt and pain make us a little selfish. They do. And th this is not right. It's not wrong. It just is. This is how pain works. Pain operates in such a way within us that there's a threshold of pain that at a certain point, I cannot really pay attention to anything else outside of myself. My focus is drawn here my life is centered here. Pain, suffering, disorientation limits our perspective. And so it is vitally important for us to get outside of ourselves. Let me illustrate this. There's an idea that, uh, you know, when a tsunami hits, when an earthquake hits, when disaster strikes, that moves us, doesn't it? Oh, man. I heard about tragedy in your life. I heard about tragedy overseas. Let me pray for them. Let me give to that cause. Let me serve in whatever way I can. Tragedy outside of us moves us. Tragedy here shuts us down. When you hurt, I pray. When I hurt, I question. Not right, not wrong, just is. This is the way pain works in our lives. C.S. Lewis has a really great, uh, really great quote on this. Um, Dustin, you can throw that up for me. Thank you. He says this. We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program that we were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it, abstractly, academically, I accept it. I've got nothing as a follower of Jesus that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it's different when that thing happens to oneself and not to others. It's different when it's reality and not imagination. Pain outside of us moves us but pain internally leads us to question. It shuts us down. When I uh, first started, actually it was five years ago to the day, I had to look this up, five years ago to the day, I uh, went on a mission trip to Haiti with our youth group. I think uh, Meg Halloran, who's singing up here, I think she was on that trip, several others who were here. And uh, it was, it was uh, let me be honest, it was a really terrible trip. <laughs> It was a really difficult trip. God did great things in the midst of it. Uh, I came on staff as the youth pastor a, a month before that trip. 
and uh, found out uh, the day I started that, oh, by the way, in a month you're gonna be leading this trip to Haiti and, and uh, there's still team building and fundraising needs to happen and uh, by the way, there's no plane tickets purchased, have fun. <laughs> and so that next month was this whirlwind of frenetic energy of trying to figure things out, trying to get money together, trying to motivate people to pray for us and give. And we're telling people, this is, this is what's going on in Haiti. This is after the earthquake of several years ago and the devastation faced there. And you, you should pray, you should give, you should sacrifice. We are gonna go and we're gonna make a difference. We took a red-eye flight. Uh, and for whatever reason, the, the trip just ended up being uh, really, really difficult. Of the 200, 300 students and leaders who were there from many churches around the country, about two-thirds ended up getting very, very sick. Several hundred of us, a couple hundred of us, got very, very sick with GI bugs. And many of us spent most of that week in a Haitian medical clinic. It's not exactly where we expected to be when we launched into that trip. Now, here I am. I'm brand new as this youth pastor. I'm, I'm, I feel like I've been uh, dragged into this trip that I hadn't, I hadn't personally planned to lead. I hadn't gotten to spend really any time to invest into. And here I am. I got very, very violently ill, and I'm along with several of our students. A couple of our students got dysentery which is like Oregon Trail kind of stuff, right? This is like a big deal. We're not doing well as a team. Morale is low. I feel like I failed as a leader. And I'm sitting in this clinic surrounded by six students and I'm just, I'm pouting, right? I'm kind of throwing a little tantrum internally and I'm saying, God, where are you at? And why would you do this? And this is miserable and I can't stand this. And why I feel awful, I'm physically in pain because I'm a guy and I just can't handle being sick at all. And I shut down completely, <laughs> which is very true. And I'm just mad. And I'm angry, and I'm asking all these questions, and I'm sitting across uh, from one of these girls, uh, one of these high school gals from our team, a gal named Casey, and we're talking, and I look at her and say, hey, how are you doing? You know, kind of scowl on my face. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that we're here. <laughs> what do you mean? That's weird. Why are you saying that? What do you, what do you mean you're grateful? We're, we're, in a, we're in a medical clinic. We're sick. We haven't gotten to do anything that we planned to do. This is miserable. Okay, why are, you, why are you grateful? She said, well, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to learn how Jesus loves these people of Haiti. Because it's one thing to be safe from a distance. It's one thing to be healthy and well-fed and behind our, uh, walls with barbed wire and people keeping us safe. But to really be here in this clinic, sick, I don't know, I feel like I can relate to them in a way I never could before. I think, I think I can relate to them the way that Jesus relates to them on the cross. Do you know what I mean? And I look at her and said, absolutely. I know exactly. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. That's exactly, That's exactly what I felt. Pain limits our perspective. And it's only when we ask questions that put us outside of ourselves that we actually can learn something. What if God, in the middle of whatever season of disorientation you're facing, whatever you're feeling, whatever question you're asking, what if God actually wants to use this season to deepen your relationship with him? What if he wants to use it to give you insights into how he loves you and how he loves others? C.S. Lewis has another quote he says this, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If you are anything like me, 
Sometimes I just don't hear God and I don't want to and I need to be roused. I need to be woken up. Again, we can sit with pleasure all day. We can sit with comfort all day, but it's not until we are in a position where we are hurting, we're in pain, that we really start to hear God speaking to us. Pain limits our perspective and our questions have to lead us somewhere. And what we need to see from Psalm 13, the Psalm of sorrows, the Psalm of longing, the Psalm of questions, is that David's questions lead him somewhere. They point him right towards his relationship with God. His questions lead him towards God, are directed towards God and not away. God can absolutely use our pain, use our suffering, use our questions to deepen our relationship with him. So we're going to end with this. How, how do we ask good questions in the middle of seasons of disorientation? Well, it starts with being honest. It starts with this. We need to look honestly at where we are. Look honestly at where you are. Not fake it until you feel it. Not walk through these doors with religious frontage. I'm smiling on the inside, but I'm dying on the inside. We have to look honestly about where we are. David is incredibly transparent with God about what he is feeling, what he's going through, and what is happening in his life. Now, quick caveat to this, appropriate transparency. There's this thing called oversharing. Sometimes it takes us, uh, sometimes we are less than wise in how we share and what we share. Right, if you're a Sunday school teacher and you're going through a particular season of disorientation and doubt, um, don't, don't go to your small group. Don't go to your children's classroom and just really start sharing that with your kids. That would be inappropriate. You know, I'm really wondering where my marriage is going, kids. I don't know what's going on here. This job, I don't know if this is right. That, that's what we call oversharing. That's what we call inappropriate sharing. Right, but as wildly inappropriate as that situation is and, and would be, it should be just as inappropriate for us to come in here day after day, week after week, year after year without anyone knowing what's going on in our lives should strike us as just as inappropriate, just as dangerous. We have to start being honest about where we are at. Second thing is this, we need to look outside the moment with perspective, right? Pain shrinks us to the size of ourselves. So what does it look like for us to get outside of our pain, to get outside of the moment that we're in? For many of us, one of the best things that we could ever do would be to hop on a plane and go on a mission trip. I'm not, I'm not trying to sell a program. I'm not trying to push uh, a particular agenda, anything like that. But sometimes getting outside of our current circumstances can be one of the very best things for us. We need help in the middle of our pain. Changing our perspective can help with that tremendously. Uh, our, my wife and I have a daughter, Maren. She's about to, about to be one years old. And uh, many of you, if you have children, if you've ever, uh, uh, if you know anything about children, uh, children learn this thing called object permanence, right? Usually around six months, kind of give or take right in there. And the idea is this, is that when, when a baby is young, when a child is young, mom, they recognize very quickly mom, dad, dad to a much lesser extent, but they're my caretakers. They, they love me. They, they care about me. They're there for me. I need them, and they protect me and watch over me. And so when mom is taking care of baby and is there, the baby is safe and secure and happy. But because a baby doesn't have object permanence, the moment that mom walks out of the room, disaster strikes. It's a crisis, right? Because she can't see mom. He can't see mom anymore. Mom is out of sight. Out of, out of mind. 
this person that once took such great care of me is no longer right in front of me and therefore they probably don't exist. When we are suffering, when we are in the middle of pain, we have got to learn God permanence. We've got to learn that God loves us, he takes care of us, and there's this whole history of the ways that God has loved us and taken care of us over the years. And even though we may not see him right in this moment of disorientation and pain, he is still there. He still loves us. He has taken care of us before. He has not abandoned us. He has not forgotten us. He is not hiding from us, though it may feel it in the moment. We have got to learn God permanence outside of our current situation, outside of our current perspective. Now, the last thing is this, is as we are in the middle of seasons of disorientation, we've got to ask one of the biggest questions of all. We need to look at who God is. Right, in the middle of disorientation, when all these questions are swirling through our, swirling through our minds of, God, when is this going to be over? And where are you at, God? And why are you doing this? We've got to ask that last question, who is God? And this is what David does and this is how he ends Psalm 13, because he looks at outside of his situation, and he looks at who God is. And you can see how Psalm 13, how the psalm of sorrows and psalm of longing ends. And it ends with these words. Verse five. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. David in the midst of disorientation, in the midst of questions, he remembers who God is. We've got to remember who God is. The psalm of sorrows, the psalm of longing, the psalm of, of abandonment, the psalm of questions, goes by other names too. It's also known as the psalm of unfailing love. It's the psalm of unfailing love. God's love doesn't fail us. Though we may not see it in the moment, though our situation may not feel like it, God's love does not fail us. And we know that most clearly, most powerfully through what Jesus did on the cross. Because Jesus himself went through the deepest, darkest, most disorienting experience possible as a perfect and holy God on the cross. And he died because of his unfailing love. We've got to look at who God is. So if you're in the middle of a season of disorientation, you're asking these questions, when is this gonna be over? I, I truly don't know. I'm really sorry, I, I wish I did. And if you're saying, why in the world is this happening? I, I, can, I can give you some theological answer that's probably not gonna be satisfying. I say, well, it's, why is this happening? Well, it's for God's glory and it's for your good. And that probably doesn't satisfy you. It wouldn't satisfy me in the moment of suffering. But I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt who God is. He is good. He is good. He is good. His love does not fail. And though it may not feel like it or seem like it in the moment, he is with you. Because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, because of his fierce and incredible love for us. So if you are disoriented, look at who God is. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your steadfast and unfailing love. Thank you, God, that you are big enough to hear our questions, that you are neither intimidated nor overwhelmed when we come to you with questions, Lord. Thank you that you give us the freedom to engage honestly with you. Lord, help us to feel that freedom, to pursue that freedom, to engage honestly, transparently with one another. 
God, we do pray that as we walk out of here, that we would not be a fake it until we feel it church, that we would not be fake it until we feel it Christians. We would be honest with one another. And yet, Lord, in the midst of disorientation, whenever that happens, whether that's right now, whether that's tomorrow, whether that's a week from now, God, you would pull us outside of ourselves. You would change our perspective. Give us this God permanence. Give us this certainty and this hope in your unfailing love. God, thank you that you hear our questions. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are near. We pray all this in your name, in the name of Jesus, amen.